Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of The Space Between Us, Social Geography and Politics, books published by Cambridge University Press this year, and the author is Ryan Enos. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Um, pleasure to have read the book. I just got it very recently and, and, and poured through it over the weekend. There's so much great, interesting stuff in here. Uh, before we get to it, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Heath. Well, I'm an associate professor of government at Harvard, and here I'm involved in lots of different things like the Institute for Quantitative Social Science and the Center for American Political Studies. And long ago, I was born and raised in California, and now I'm out here. Yeah, uh, wonderful. And your your background prior to uh, your doctoral studies and prior to your time at Harvard um, is something that you mention in the acknowledgement section of the book where you talk about your time at Paul Robeson High School. Uh, this time at Paul Robeson High School uh, relates in some ways to the book. I wonder if you could just sort of tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to, to one of the um, uh, organizing ideas of the book. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's. I think it's a very um, poignant example, actually, of the larger theme I'm talking about in the book, which is about how uh, social geography, where people live, how it affects what we think about other people. And the example I use was my time as a high school teacher in Chicago, living on the north side of Chicago, which as even a casual observer knows of Chicago, about Chicago is the sort of white side of the city, and teaching on the south side of Chicago, which is this segregated black side of the city and passing through these two environments every day on the train and how I would think about when these groups came together, these white people from the north side and black people from the south side would come together in the center of the city, how their relations with each other were shaped by by these two different sides that they lived on and the fact that they are segregated. And in the book, I go through all these other cases where we can see this, where this segregation into different places or lack of segregation, how it affects the way people relate both in these in these places like these train stations I saw in Chicago and these more formal settings like legislative bodies and things like that. I have this idea that you're going to do a book reading at the Midwest meeting on on one of the L's, that you're going to start the reading <laughs> in one section and it'll move to the other and it'll be an illustration of uh, what you study in the book. As you mentioned, uh, this book is about social geography and is about space, um, but you have specific meanings for those two terms. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by space and what you mean by social geography. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good question. So by social geography, I mean where people are located on the Earth's surface. And I, and I say that this can be defined by certain dimensions that are important to how people think about each other. And I talk about segregation, so how, how separated or integrated groups are in, in space. And I talk about the size, the relative size of groups in space, which is something that political scientists and social scientists in general have talked a lot about. And I talk about the proximity of groups – 
And of course, these are all um, these are all separate dimensions. A, a group can be very large, but it can also be very far away, and we might not care about that group as much, and it might not affect our behavior as much and our thoughts as much. And I also talk um, when I when I talk about space, I am talking about um, I'm talking about social space. But one of the points of the book is that social geography affects how we think about each other in other types of space, like psychological space, how similar we feel to groups, and our political space, how much how much we have things in common when it comes to ideology and policy, and also, of course, in our social space, whether we live with people, whether we have the social networks with people, of friends and colleagues. And I say that all these things are intertwined, and we can look at where people are on their surface and predict how they will be, how close they are on their surface will help us predict how close they'll be in these other types of space as well. You you refer in part to this as as group-based bias as an important part of understanding social geography. Um, group-based bias uh, means means what for you in, in the book and, and how you approach it? Yeah, well, I, I chose to use a very general term for when people interact and they favor one group over the other. And this is something we we care about a lot across the social sciences, of course. We care in political science. We care about resource distribution, whether people will share with groups. And we care about um, attitudes people toward, toward, hold towards other groups. And we see these across the social sciences. And so in a very general term, what I said in this book is I want to know how social geography affects our interactions with other groups. Groups, And then I said that in some of these interactions, of course, we might favor our in-group over an out-group. And I called that group-based bias because one of the points of the book is that this the effect of social geography is so general. It can affect us across so many different domains that we shouldn't just focus on one particular behavior, but we focus on a whole range of behaviors that can be grouped into this general term of group-based bias. Now, as you mentioned, this is this is an area segregation and, and related issues is something that has been studied a lot. Much of the value of the book is the is the way you study this, and and you conduct two types of experiments in the book: uh, field and and laboratory experiments. I wonder if you could talk a little about your decisions about when to use one and and when to use the other, and if there's something we learn from one that we can't learn from the other. So tell us a little bit about these really interesting methods that you use. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, of course, this, there's been so much valuable work on on social geography and how and how people are affected by who lives around them. But but as we all know, there there's issues that um, that make it uh, difficult to make um, to, to draw conclusions from that. Sometimes some a lot of those are just issues of selection, where we're worried that it's not actually social geography that's causing these changes in behavior or attitudes. And so one of the innovations I think in the book is turning to things like, like experiments. And, um, in some cases, um, I went to the field to do this. Um, uh, there's some, uh, some, uh, um, some studies involved uh, putting people into train stations in Boston and other such studies like that where we tried to change social geography on the ground and and see how that affected people's behavior. And, and we could show in a very real way using people's everyday lives that if we can make small changes to those in a controlled fashion, that it actually changes the, what people think about policy and about other people. And, and there's a lot of value in those. Um, in other cases, um, what, what I did is went into the laboratory 
laboratory and, and, and change social geography in the laboratory, which I think is something that has actually not really been done before. And it's one of the reasons I'm excited to, to get this book out. And, and the reason we, we went into the laboratory was that it, it, it allowed for that, that very tightly controlled, um, that very con- tightly controlled environment where we could even do things like hold intergroup contact constant. So it would take groups into the laboratory and move them around in space, sometimes segregate them together, sometimes integrate them together and not allow them to talk. So it had nothing to do with people having contact with each other, but actually just their perceptions of whether people were integrated or segregated in space. And we saw that this changed behavior in this very, in this very uh, sharp way that it changed how people behave towards groups just based on this social, this social geography in this, in this very uh, small uh, controlled environment. Now, there's so many experiments in the book, I, I realized it was hard to even know how to refer to one versus another. Yeah. But, but let's talk in the beginning of the book about what might be called one of the, the Cambridge Lab experiments and, and sort of sets up uh, the introduction you do to, to testing these ideas. I wonder if you could talk about um, uh, how this worked, how you recruited people and um, what you learned about space and group bias from it. So are we referring to um, some of the experiments we did here in Harvard in the laboratory? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so, um, so, so one of, um, one of the experiments in the book is where, um, is where we recruited people, normal people, not students. So I say normal people mm-hmm. off, um, off Craigslist. And there's a very specific reason for that because what we are going to do is, um, is, is assign these people to, to arbitrary groups where we assign them to groups that were completely made up. And, um, and, and we didn't want students because we, you know, figured they might know each other before that. So we had to go out and find real people in the real world. And we brought them into a laboratory in Harvard and we assigned them to minimal groups, which is something you see in psychology, assigned them to a group that was just made up by a flip of the coin. And then we took them into a classroom, um, over the, with the, with the guise of having to put them in a waiting room while we set up other rooms. And, and we randomized when they're in this classroom, whether they were integrated by these minimal groups or whether they were segregated by these minimal groups. So in one case, they'd be sitting just randomly across the classroom. And in another case, they would be sitting with one group all on one side of the classroom and the other group all on the other side of the classroom. And we left them to sit there for just five minutes. They couldn't talk. They just had to sit there for five minutes. And then we sent them off on their own to, to, um, to tell us about the other group. So we asked them um, things like um, what their perceptions of the physical characteristics were of the, other, of, of the groups, what their uh, perceptions, so how tall are these groups, how heavy are these groups, what do they look like, and their social characteristics. Like are these groups, um, what, what, is the, what do you think the politics of these groups are? How much money do you think they make? And then we actually even gave them an opportunity to share money with other group in a, in a classic dictator game. And, and what we found was the behavior when they were in this segregated situation for just five minutes was much different than the behavior when they're in their integrated situation for five minutes. And in the segregated situation, they said that the groups were more distinct. They said that the group I'm in is very different physically and socially than the group that I'm not in. And they actually were less willing to share money across the groups. They gave more money to their own group when they're segregated than they did when they're integrated. So there was bias in giving this group-based bias. 
And and what what I think these experiments show is that this this effect of segregation has this direct effect on how we perceive other people. It changes our perceptions in psychological space. It changes how close we feel to these other groups, and we can see this actually manifest in real costly behavior where they're less willing to sh- to share. And of course, the analog to this sharing in a laboratory, this sharing in a dictator game, is how people share when it comes to public goods in the real world, whether we're willing to do all these things that make a country have to function, like sharing welfare and, sh- and building roads and sharing our schools and all these things that we think are important to a well-functioning society. And it shows that the social geography of a society affects how well we can do those things across groups. Now, you also uh, leave the laboratory and, and go into the field. Would you talk about this, uh, the design of this Boston Confederate study, the, the train station study that has gotten a good deal of attention and, and what, what this study tells us about issues of diversity? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, as you know, that that's a study that's um, gotten a good deal of attention over the time. And one thing that was um, that was nice about talking about it in the context of this book is I could talk about how it tied into larger issues of social geography. Um, and what we did in this study was went out to these train stations in the Boston area that were places that were largely Anglo-white suburbs. And that's like most places in the United States actually are places where mostly Anglos live. And we wanted to know what would happen as they diversified in a way that the country is headed towards, if demographers are correct, which is that places are going to become more, um, are going to become more heavily Latino. That's the, the demographic change we're experiencing in the country. And we went to these train stations and um, randomized into different, different train times into having Confederates, people that worked for me, visit those stations um, for a series of days at the same time every day. These Confederates that we sent out were um, were native Spanish speakers, and we sent them, sent them in pairs and instructed them to get on the train at the same time and ride back to Boston. When they were waiting for the train, we didn't tell them what to do, but our assumption was that they would talk to each other in Spanish, and that's what they did. What we did um, to these trains that were visited by these uh, Spanish-speaking Confederates and the ones that were not is we um, we uh, we um, s- surveyed them about their attitudes about immigration policy, and we found that these ones that had been treated experimentally treated by these two Spanish speakers for just a few minutes every day, that the people on those train platforms became much more conservative, much more exclusionary in terms of their immigration policy. So, so what this taught us, which I which I I think was was really important was that that any place, even a very sort of liberal place like Boston, can see this movement in an exclusionary direction, this movement towards being anti-immigrant when they're exposed to immigrants. So when the social geography changes in a way that it becomes more diverse, that that, that, that can cause this reaction that's against something like immigration. And of course, we see, um, we see hints of that, which is something I was able to expand on in the book, in something like the 2016 election, where there's some evidence that the places that um, were, that places that became rapidly diversified that became more heavily Latino in the last 10 years or so were places that swung towards uh, Donald Trump and maybe were attracted by his anti-immigrant rhetoric. So in, in designing this experiment, is what, what matters um, the, the language spoken or the number of individuals or the, the, the place where the interaction was happening? That is a, a train traveling from one place to another what what triggers the this outcome which is is not a positive outcome from most what most people would think 
Yeah, well, that's a that's a very good question, and and the short answer um, is that I I can't precisely know because I only have one experiment, but I I have some speculation on that that I can take from the from the rest of my work, and I think one important element of this is that we sent these people these Confederates to ride on these inbound trains um, from these uh, from around people's homes into Boston, and in that sense, we were acting like we were we were trying to send the signal that their neighbor had changed. So these people were there waiting at the train station and leaving it in the morning to go to Boston, um, just like they were. And they were therefore new people in their neighborhood. And that's a lot different than experiencing something like um, uh, diversity where you work, or even diversity in a laboratory that you might um, that somebody might do for a study or something. This was diversity changing in their home in their in their home neighborhood. And and I think that's what we care about when we care about immigration. So that might have been something that changed their attitude in that way, that they thought it was their home that was diversifying. Uh, there's other elements we can think about, like had had these Confederates shown up and not been speaking Spanish, would their attitude, would people's attitudes have changed? And that's a little harder to know. One thing we, we do know is we could we took ratings of the appearance of these Confederates where we put them up and surveyed people uh, about their photos and said, what do they look like? And, and the people that responded definitely thought that they looked they, they described them as looking like foreigners and looking like immigrants and looking Hispanic. So people definitely could see them and know that they looked Hispanic. But at the same time, what they also said was that they looked friendly and intelligent. And so they weren't people that had an appearance that we would necessarily think people wouldn't want in their neighborhood other than that part about looking foreign. And, and perhaps that and this combination of language is what, um, is what uh, set off people's anti-immigrant attitudes. Now, your research wasn't limited to the U.S. You, you took your theories to at least um, to Israel. Um, yeah. Did this change your conclusions at all? Is, is what you learned primarily a, an American politics story or is there a comparative dimension to this or, or something uh, sort of much more human about the findings? Yeah, well, I, I think there's something much more human. I think that's a good way to put it. And, and I, and what one thing I hope is that people that uh, don't study American politics, that study other countries, will look at this too and think about how it. Um, how it applies to um, intergroup interactions in other places, and we we sometimes have this um, this habit in political science of studying intergroup relations in the United States and then studying them everywhere else and thinking that they're that they're very different phenomenon. And of course, in some ways, they are. But but my claim is that when we think about things like social geography, people on the earth, and when we think about things like psychology and how those two things interact, that that's going to be universal. That those things are going to interact in the same way. Of course, there'll be differences in how it plays out, but the basic building blocks will be the same. And this is something I wanted to demonstrate. And so what we did is we took these theories that I had um, built up in the United States and we we went to Israel and designed a study that was very um, that that was very intentionally designed to, to test these these um, to test these outcomes and and these independent variables of segregation and group size and see if they affected things like the same things we saw in the laboratory in the United States things like sharing and things like attitudes and and what we found is they did they they actually fit very well with the predictions in Israel in a very different society using very different groups we were talking about religious groups here we weren't talking about racial groups groups like we often do in the United States. And I thought that was pretty good evidence that there's something um, that there's something
something somewhat universal about this. It, it of course, um, takes on a very important form in the United States because the United States is a country that is um, that is rapidly diversifying, and we could say the same thing about some places like in Western Europe. But I think that there's an element of this when groups come together in space that affects behavior that we can see everywhere. And I think people that study Africa should should hopefully, um, if if I can be so immodest, take some take some lessons from this. And I think people that study um, you know, Latin America should take some lessons too. I think this is something we should all think about when we study intergroup relations. Now, you write at the end of the book that waiting for social contact to happen uh, may not be enough. And you talk a little bit about what policymakers might be able to, to do to respond to the findings. So what can policymakers do? And are there limits to what policy can do in this situation? Yeah, well, there, there of course are limits, and and what I mean by waiting for um, waiting for contact to happen may not be enough is that we often in policy in the United States we often do what I would call sort of nibbling around the edges of um, of intergroup contact where we say we're going to wait for contact to happen in institutions like schools and like businesses and like universities, but of course. Even in schools, we've we've stepped back from that in the United States. We don't we don't have programs um, to really encourage contact across groups um, in the way we once did, and that's a choice we we we've made as a society because we we have this tension between our individual freedom to move and to choose where we live, and the and this need we have for intergroup contact to improve diversity or to, to improve relations between the groups through diversity. And one of the one of the but one of the lessons from this this book, I think, is that this nibbling around the edges, that this um, trying to improve things through institutions really only uh, is going to take us so far as long as we have residential segregation, because it just seems to have such a powerful effect on the way we think about things. Now, that is a really hard nut to crack. People have been trying to, to change uh, segregation for, for a long time in this country. Um, but one of the points I make is that we, we are always experiencing changes in, um, in our patterns of, um, of urban living in this country, these patterns of where we live across, across the United States. And, and those, and those, uh, present opportunities. So we see rapid, rapid growth in, in cities, in places like the Southwest and the South, where, um, where we're not dealing with old crowded spaces, but with these new expanses of land and how, and where, you know, we're building, we're building uh, suburb after suburb. And, and that's where we're seeing the fastest growth of both immigrant populations and of native populations. People are moving to these places and that presents a real opportunity where we can say we can recreate the old patterns of segregation these patterns of segregation we've, we've seen in these cities that social scientists have been so interested in, like Chicago and like New York and Boston and places like that. Or we can think of that as an opportunity to break down these patterns of segregation and really concentrate on how our built environment, how our urban planning, how that affects how we are integrated across social space and ultimately how that affects how well we'll get along. The, the book, the really interesting book, uh, is titled The Space Between Us, Social Geography and Politics – published by Cambridge University Press this year, and the author is Ryan Enos. Ryan, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>